0: This morning's reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 16 verses 1 through to 23 and it can be found on page 440 of your Bibles. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse said, he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers and from that day on the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let your Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, "'I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem, who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him.' Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, "'Send me your son David, who who is with the sheep.' So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul.' David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armour bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him.
1: Well, some of you will know that I was born across the ditch in New Zealand. And before you stop listening to anything else I have to say this morning, let me tell you that I moved here when I was about two years old, or just after turning two. So I am pretty much Australian, but I was born in New Zealand. And I'm telling you this so that you know kind of what was on TV in our house as we grew up. If there was a football game on TV in our house, it wasn't AFL, it wasn't soccer, it was always rugby it was always Rugby Union. And probably because of that, the game that I played when I went to school wasn't AFL or soccer, but also was Rugby Union. And as a kid growing up in the 1990s, it's not surprising then that my hero in life was a rugby player. I've got a photo of him on the screen behind me here. You may not know him being from Adelaide, most of you, but this is Jonah Lomu. For those of you who don't know him, he was regarded as the best rugby player of his time. He was voted, I think, as the best player in the 1995 World Cup of Rugby. If you want to know any more about that tournament this morning, I suggest you go and talk to Werner. It was a great tournament for South Africa. Lomu played in two World Cup tournaments and he scored 15 tries. He was described as the biggest drawcard in rugby union's history. And biggest is kind of a play on words because Lomu was a big man. He stood six feet, five inches tall. He weighed more than 120 kilograms. He was, you might describe him as a mountain of a man. You think a man like that would be pretty slow around the field, but Jonah Lomu could run 100 metres in 10.8 seconds. He was almost an elite sprinter. Traditionally, big blokes like Jonah Lomu play in the fords. They are in positions that don't need much finesse or much skill, I suppose. Lomu revolutionised the game and played on the wing. He was a sight to behold. In fact, he was probably the closest thing that New Zealand have come to having a modern day king. As I said, he was the biggest draw card in a game that New Zealand has made its own. He was dominant, he was physically huge, he was skilled even when you compared him to other professional players of his time. And so, for a school kid, growing up, playing rugby union, when Lomu was at the top of his game, he was the bloke you wanted to be. I wonder who that was for you. Perhaps it was Alan Border or Gary Ablett or Michael Jordan. Roger Federer, Dawn Fraser, Kathy Freeman. See, all of these people, they obtained greatness in an area of their expertise because they were physically at the top of their game, and they had a bucket load of skill. They almost appeared, I think, to be superhumans in comparison to the rest of us. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is a chapter all about appearances. And seeing. It shows us the way that things are seen and it has two different lenses, our way of seeing and God's way of seeing. And I think this chapter, chapter 16, is probably the most important chapter in the whole book of 1 Samuel. And the most important chapter might even be able to be boiled down just to one verse, verse 7 of chapter 16. I think this is what this verse is all about. God's plans, God's plans are not influenced or shaped by human ability. Our successes or our strength or our handsomeness or our beauty don't shape God's plans. Being the greatest rugby player doesn't matter. Being able to run 100 metres in 10.8 seconds doesn't matter. Having a menacing haircut doesn't matter. God looks at the heart. How we appear from an outward perspective is then less important to God than what we actually are. I think 1, chapter, one Samuel chapter 16 says that having a heart after God's own heart is ultimately what matters. Height and prowess and physical ability and beauty and diplomacy and suaveness and all those sorts of things that we see from an outward appearance, they're not necessarily bad things, but they're probably not the things that really matter to God. And if we're going to see that, we'll need to dig deep into verse 7 of chapter 16. But before we say that, I want us to notice just a few other things about 1 Samuel chapter 16. The passage starts with us seeing Samuel in mourning. I wondered if you noticed that there, it's in verse 1. He's mourning the downfall of Israel's first king, Saul. I reckon this is an interesting inclusion into the story. See, Samuel, if you remember, he never really wanted an earthly king. And eventually Saul was chosen. And as I kind of read through the story, I kind of think, well, Samuel and Saul never seemed to be the best of friends either. Saul was chosen by the people. Remember, Saul means something like the one that you asked for. And Samuel is eventually the one who confronts Saul with his sinfulness. And here in chapter 16, we see Samuel fearing for his life because of Saul. So why then is Saul in mourning? I wonder when the last time you cried was, there are things in this world that are not worth getting upset or not worth crying about, aren't there? Last week, when I was getting my kids their breakfast ready in the morning, Hamish asked for a cup of milk. I know that because I'm his dad. But what Hamish actually said was "guck, dad." That's translated in Hamish speakers, "dad, I'd like some milk, please." So I, dutifully, I poured him a glass of milk and I set it down in front of him on the table. And as I did so, the corners of his mouth turned down, and he began to cry. He kind of fell off his chair into my arms, he was weeping so much. I asked him, what's wrong? He said, Dad, I don't want the dinosaur cup, I want the car cup. <laughs> you know, even for a two-year-old, it seems a pretty pathetic thing to, like, fall off your chair in weeping about. It was Hamish's morning. I wonder when the last time you cried was. Last year, we looked at the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel. You might remember the second Beatitude. It says, This, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I think Samuel's enacting that here. Samuel's mourning because of the sin of Saul. He's mourning because the king of Israel has been rejected by God because of his disobedience and his hubris. It's appropriate, isn't it, that Israel's prophet, would mourn because of that. He's mourning over the state of his nation. I wonder this year if you've spent some time reflecting on your own life. Have you had times where you need to mourn over your sinfulness or over the sinfulness of others who are close to you? Nearly every week here at Trinity Church only we say a prayer of confession. We'll do it before our service ends today. And because we say it every week, I know that for many of you, these words will be becoming overly familiar. I want to remind you today that our sinfulness is worth mourning over. It's serious. For Saul, it cost him the kingdom. Sin is a matter of life and death. And God tells Samuel to stop mourning because he's chosen a new king. What I want you to see this morning is that it's a king of God's choosing in comparison to a king of the people's choosing. This is what God says, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Earlier, when Saul was chosen, the language was different. When God revealed Saul to Samuel, he said this, about this time tomorrow, I will send you to a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler of my people over Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. They cried out for a king, and God provided. There's a difference, isn't there? This king, in chapter 16, has been chosen by God, not asked for by the people. Go to Bethlehem, God says, and to Jesse's house. And so Samuel does as he's told. And when he gets there, he sees Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. Eliab is our Jonah Lomu in the story. He's the oldest son, and that places him in a special category. I think we have to understand that he's probably the strongest and the tallest. Kind of seems a bit funny for us today, doesn't it? I'm the oldest of four kids in my family. I'm neither the strongest nor the tallest, but I am the oldest. And you know, even if I was the tallest, it's no mean feat in my family. You should see my brothers, though, they're just a little bit taller than me. None of, these, none of my brothers are anything like Jonah Lomu, but Eliab was. Samuel sees him and he's impressed. he thinks, here is the next king. For the astute reader, you might remember how Saul was described back in chapter 9. He was a full head, taller than everybody else. He was young and he was handsome. Eliab seems to be these things also. Strong enough as a king to lead others into battle, handsome enough to command the respect of his foes. But God is not so impressed with his height or his appearance or his achievements. Let me read to you this pivotal verse in 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Eliab, it seems, had a lot going in terms of outward appearance, but the Lord does not look at the things people look at. And so he rejects Eliab. Eliab will not be the king. And neither will the next oldest brother be, or the next, or the next. And the story moves on, and as we go through the list of brothers, we kind of get the feeling, don't we, that the physical size and stature of these brothers is decreasing. The outward suitability for kingship is diminishing. Until finally, Samuel says, Are these all the sons you have? And there is one more, the very youngest, the shepherd. He's so unlikely he's not even in the room. And yet, this is the boy, David, who Samuel is told to anoint. See, we see with our eyes, but God sees with the heart. wonder this morning how that makes you feel, knowing that the Lord looks with the heart. I think for some of us, this will be a really comforting kind of verse, knowing that God understands us, that God sees right into us, that He sees past the superficial and the trivial in us, knowing that God's not constrained to the views of those around us who seem so often to overlook us. Perhaps you can remember being at school when teams were picked know what I'm talking about, but the way that I remember this going was that two kids are selected by the teacher to choose maybe a soccer team for the day. And they select people to be on their team. How are their selections made? Well, it seemed to me that it was always on popularity, height, looks, wearing the right clothes. Maybe at the bottom of that list came how well you play soccer. And if you were always picked in the bottom half of that list, like I was, then this verse is probably comforting for you. See, God is not limited in his choice by outward appearances. I think those of us who feel the pressure of the world around us to conform and to compete, these words will also have comfort for us. Because so often that pressure is about how we appear. Competing for a better body, a better job, better sporting results competing towards amassing better toys and gadgets. So, to know that God doesn't look at the outward appearances, well, what a relief and what a comfort. I've known since I was about 15 or 16 that I was always going to be about this tall. The only time I'm a head taller than anyone else is when I drop Hamish off at kindy. But here we read that God is not so concerned with height as what I might be. And this is one of those themes that I think carries right through the Bible. We don't just see it in Samuel. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus has just told the Pharisees that no one can serve two masters. You either serve God or you serve money. And the Pharisees, with all their religious trappings, with all their outward appearances of being holy and upright and just, they sneer. At Jesus. They have a religious facade and they sneer at Jesus. And listen to what Jesus says You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. You justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight, Jesus goes on to say. See, God sees through the facade of the Pharisees right into their hearts. We've got a number of radiologists here at Trinity Church only. I probably should have asked them how they do this before I speak on it. But at least as I understand it, radiologists are able to look through the skin to what lies beneath. They do it, obviously, with the help of equipment, And like radiologists, God is able to see into the core of our being. He's not looking for broken bones or tumours or things going wrong with our body, but looking for obedience and mercy and love and humility. He knows us. He knows what's in us. John chapter 2 tells us that. He says, in John chapter 2, we read, After Jesus had cleared out the temple... There were those who began, just began to believe in Jesus. And yet, this is what Jesus tells us in verse 24 and 25 of John chapter 2. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He knows us. He knows what's in each person. God's seeing it's not limited to the outward appearance. He sees through the facade no matter how well it's constructed, and He knows what's inside. So that for some of us, that'll be a great comfort. But I think for others, this might be a bit of a scary verse. Because at times it's easy to cover up the way that the heart looks, isn't it? If we train ourselves to pray well in public, we might be seen as being spiritually mature, even if we never pray on our own. God can see that. You might have seen those Instagram-worthy photos of a Bible and a cup of coffee and maybe some special protein and rich food sitting on that cap cafe table framed up nicely for Facebook but if the Bible is nothing more than a photography prop it won't help us to have a heart after God's own heart. And so we should take hold of that old adage, shouldn't we today? Don't judge a book by its cover for this idea, looks can be deceiving. And we can be comforted by the fact that our God knows us right to the inside. Before we move on from this verse, there is something else that must be said here about God's heart. John Woodhouse is an Australian Bible teacher. He spent many years at Moore College in Sydney and he suggests a slightly different reading to verse 7. I think it's a really useful reading for us to understand how the whole book of 1 Samuel works. I've got uh, John Woodhouse's translation for this verse on the screen behind me. He says this, for the Lord sees not as man sees, for man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to the heart. Now, if you come back with me to chapter 13, verse 14 of 1 Samuel, you'll see verse 14 of chapter 13 on the top of the left hand column on page 434. And while you're turning there, just let me reseat this verse for you so you know where it fits in the story. This is just after Saul has been accused of doing a foolish thing. And Samuel, speaking about God, says this, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. This is when Samuel has had the kingdom taken from him. And so, John Woodhouse reads the heart in chapter 16, verse 7, as God's heart, not David's heart. So, Woodhouse's contribution here is to say, what is important is the place that David has in God's heart, not the place God has in David's heart. Does that make sense? God has chosen David, therefore he is in God's heart. God has set his heart on him. So, in other words, while people see with eyes that look at external things... God sees according to His will and His purpose. This, I think, is a very helpful way of us understanding the flow of the book of 1 Samuel. But to say that 1 Samuel cares nothing about our own hearts, well, that seems to be problematic, taking it too far. So, where does that leave us? Well, firstly, I want us to see that God's vision the way that God sees, is not constrained to the way that we see. Secondly, I want us to see that God knows us intimately. He knows our essence. He knows what we are like. And thirdly, I think it's useful for us to know and think that God makes decisions based on His will and His purpose. Here are three things that we need to hold together as we try and work out what verse 7 of 1 Samuel chapter 16 means. love you to keep pondering and working through that this week. I just want to have a look at the next section of text with you before we finish today. It's all about the Spirit filling David and leaving Saul. Let me read to you from verse 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel chapter 16. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers and from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, and Samuel went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? David anointed with the Spirit, God filling him, and Saul, God's Spirit, now departed, and an evil spirit tormenting him in his place. And the solution to this, the solution to Saul's torment is to have David come and console him with music that he plays on a lyre. Much of what we've seen so far in Samuel is, has this irony in it, doesn't it? It's irony at work here. The rejected king is comforted by the anointed king. And there's another thing going on behind the scene here as well. Just as God has chosen David... So too, Saul has chosen him for different purposes, but David is being chosen twice. Do you ever wonder what it must have been like for David to have this work of consolation for a king who's no longer anointed but still sits on the throne while he himself is the anointed one? An Incredible picture, isn't it? David providing relief through the work of the Spirit. He's enlivened for the task, he's equipped for it, he's gifted, he's strengthened by the Spirit to do this. David is held up in the Bible as the archetypal king. A king after God's own heart, or a king God has set his heart on. Yet if you know the story of how Samuel goes into Samuel, you know that David ended up committing some horrendous things. You might ask, when will God ever have a king who will reign with justice and righteousness and peace? If not David, then when? And this is how I think the Old Testament so well prepares us for the coming of Jesus. You see, what God has done to fix up this world is huge. In the Old Testament, we see and hear God's promises I will have a king after my own heart. And we see that fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. And so it should, I don't think, surprise us to see all these illusions and shadows and pointers of Jesus in this story of David being anointed as the king. And I just want to highlight a few of these with you this morning. 200 years after this this story happens, Isaiah would speak of a root arising from the stump of Jesse. We're able to trace the family line of Jesus right back to David. It would indeed be from Jesse's household that God's true king would come. In this story, did you notice the mention of Bethlehem? It's there like a clanging bell, I think, for us. Both Jesus and David were born there. As the Spirit of God rushes upon David at his anointing, did you recall the baptism of Jesus and the Spirit descending on him? Let me just read to you those words. It says, At that moment heaven opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased." Some great allusions, aren't there, to the story of Jesus as we look at David being anointed. And there's one other allusion that I think is really helpful for us to see. I've learned this this week from Guy Mason, who's a pastor in Melbourne. He pointed this out, and I think it's a really great thing for us to see together. It's a reminder of the now and not yet reign of Jesus. (coughs) See, when David was anointed, in many ways, he became king but only if you had the right eyes to see it. By outward appearances, by all other ways of seeing, Saul was still the king. He was still the one seated on the throne. Now, sure, David would be the one who challenged and ultimately defeated Goliath in the next chapter. And so, in many ways, David was fulfilling, just in the next chapter, the kingly duties. But most still would have seen Saul as the one who was seated on the throne. It'll be many chapters until Saul's eventual death that David finally does take the throne of Israel properly. So you could say at this point in the story that David's kingship is a now and not yet kind of a kingship. He has the spirit of God and he fulfills some of his kingly duties, but it still looks like Saul is the one who reigns that a great reminder of the now and not yet rule and reign of King Jesus? You see, today, Jesus is the Messiah. That means he is the anointed one. He is God's anointed king. He has conquered death and he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Next week, over Easter, we'll be reflecting again on the certainty of those things. He is God's king. He reigns supreme And yet, when we look at the world around us with our eyes, it appears that not everything is in subjugation to King Jesus. His reign is a now and not yet reign. How Jesus appears today, then, will depend on what sort of way we look at him. Do we look with the eyes? Are we looking at outward appearances? Or do we look with the heart? The Bible tells us that a time is coming when all things will be put right. At that day, Jesus will rule in a way in which every knee will bow before Him. The world will be put right. I hope this is an encouragement to you. See, for many of us, we will see the brokenness of the world around us, suffering and pain and disappointment. And at times we might be persuaded to ask, is Jesus really the King? Well, here in the story of David, we see David's rule is not seen by all, yet the Spirit of God rests upon him. If you don't have eyes to see it, we won't necessarily realise that David has been anointed as the king. 1 Samuel 16 has been all about how things are seen. The world in which we live, it places great value on the way things appear from the outside, beauty and strength. Ability to play a game, a sport. Those things are held up in esteem. We look towards our own Jonah Lomus, whoever that is, for you. But God doesn't work that way. God looks at the heart. His concern is for the heart. His concern is for His kingdom and His will. We pray that we would see things that way as well. Father God, we give you thanks for this story that helps us to see how you think and do things. We give you thanks that you are a sovereign God, a powerful God, and a God who will have what you desire. We give you thanks that amongst that sovereignty, that greatness, that power, you're able to see into our lives, into our hearts. And even though you know the state of what we are like, you chose out of your great love for us to send your Son to die for us so that we could know you better. Amen. I have got lots of questions today, and I'm not going to be answer answer all of them. If you if I don't answer your question, come and see me afterwards. If I answer your question and I do a bad job at answering it, I apologise. I'm trying to think through a number of different answers this morning. Um, so please come and come and see me afterwards. Um, let me just try and tackle a couple of questions. In 1 Samuel 16:14 and and 16:15, it mentions the evil spirit, and the footnote it says it was harmful from the Lord. The Lord tormented him. How can an evil spirit come from the Lord when we know any good can come from him? Well, as I read it, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. It seems that the spirit comes from the Lord. I wonder what um, the purpose of that is. Earlier in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, we saw the spirit coming on Saul to enable him to prophesy and to go about doing the work of the king. The Spirit comes on David, and if you keep reading in the following chapters, David is successful in all he does, it seems because the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. So I wonder kind of what's going on here is kind of just a bit of a play between Saul being blessed by God and enlivened and uh, vivified and empowered by the Spirit to go about the role of being king, and here we have David now in contrast. Being shown to be the one who has all those things the gift of the spirit to enable him to do what the king should do while saul is inhibited in his ability to do that because instead he has a spirit that torments him I if that answers your question um, if not please come and see me uh, one other question to deal with um try and answer we learned that god looks at the heart and is not a respecter of persons how do we apply that today We learn that God looks at the heart. How do we apply that today? Um, It's a good question, I think, Um, and one that I perhaps didn't address um, particularly well. Um, I'd like you to come to uh, Colossians chapter 1 with me Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Because I think this speaks about the state of our heart for those of us who don't trust and know Jesus. Colossians 1, on page 1829, verse 21, says this, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Heart's in the wrong place. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's the Easter story, right? Because of Christ's physical body, bodily death and resurrection we can be presented holy without blemish in the sight of Jesus how do we apply this today one way to apply this today is if you've seen and you know that God looks on your heart you can make your heart right by putting your hope and trust in Jesus he's a rejuvenator of our heart a reconciler of us he brings us back to God that's one way. Uh, that's probably enough for now. If you've got further questions, please come and see me afterwards. I'd love to chat with them about you more. Thanks.